Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. Were there any specific design decisions that led you in a direction on this project? Um, to, I mean, we talked about local that comes back to this client, you know, what, what they wanted. We've had a lot of conversations, you know, over the, the, the years about, you know, what is really sustainable, you know, like, is there a product that you can get locally, but it's really terrible. And, you know, you, you wouldn't kind of go for that. Or, um, you know, you said granite, there's lots of granite in Maine, but it gets shipped to Canada to be processed and then it comes back. And so it adds this whole level of energy intensity to it that even though it's technically a local product, it's not that great. Um, so I'm sure during the design process, you guys talked about materials and some of those materials may have shaped the form or may have shaped the, you know, the outcome of the project. Um, we haven't talked very specifically about this particular project. We talked a lot about your integrated team design and the way you work and how that works in Vermont and being local. Were there any specifics about this particular project that you wanted to cover? Um, oh, sure. It's, I mean, it is a very, very site specific project. Um, it just, the, the, the feeling of the site, the aesthetics of the site, site drove the aesthetics of the project and the materials that we used in the project, we really wanted to set up a dialogue uh, between the building and the land that it sits in and explore new ways to express that dialogue. And so on this particular site, there was a very strong, I think one of the first times I was there, there was a layer of snow and you had these really strong, you know, all the trees were very, very vertical. It was very, it was sort of cleared out. So it's very strong vertical linearity with these diagonal purple shadows going off on the snow. And it got me going, wow, how can I, how can I think about that in the building? And that's where the fins, the siding came from. Not only is the siding itself, it's not exactly from the site, but it's from pretty close by. But I realized that we could do something with the siding, which is hemlock. And, you know, it would be a little bit experimental and maybe they'll think I'm crazy or this is going to be way too expensive, but I- Did you I, think he was crazy, Gerald? <laughs> <laughs> I did oh, some sketches, some very seductive sketches, so. This was one of those times when he was like, um, yeah, 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 yeah. The craziness. The fun thing was that the fun thing was how, how much the crew got into it and they were having a blast and they tried to do, I said random. So they tried to do some sort of repeating pattern that the architect wouldn't notice. <laughs> How'd that work out need, for you? We need to discuss that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, that's an example of, the materials, the design, the site, the client, and everything just sort of coming together with this new thing, which is, you know, that was fun. Like the longevity of the materials then too. So like you did this kind of cool design, but you said hemlock and hemlock is naturally occurring, but did you stain it? Did you, you know, did you use a rain screen behind it? Like what were then the details where you're like, okay, 
I want to create this really unique and interesting verticality that has to do with the site. What does that mean from a design implication, both for A, to build it, because, you know, now your builder has to make a random pattern that the architect won't notice and attach all of these fins on here. But also he doesn't want to come back in a year because there's some kind of interesting detail that you didn't all consider together. Like if I attach this hemlock directly to the side of my board sheathing, is am I going to have a moisture issue because of the construction? Like you guys talked through all of those details. Yeah, so there's there's a layering of things there. So in high school, I actually worked in a sawmill and I cut a lot of pine and hemlock and, and other woods and I got a little bit of an understanding of how wood holds up, how it works. And hemlock is sort of as underused. It's some some foresters consider, consider it almost a, you know, waste type of wood. But I know that it's harder than pine. It will turn gray with less of that black moldy stain thing that happens when you leave pine un, untreated. And so, and it's also relatively inexpensive. It's fairly easy to work with when it's, when it's relatively green. You don't really want to work with it when it's hard as a rock and fully dry. So I had been doing that on other projects for a while, and this is sort of taking it to that next step. And so, yeah, if a board starts to show rot or twists and gets gnarly and, you know, really needs to come off, uh, the des design is such, the detailing is such that it can come off, it can get tossed in the bushes, and you can put a new board in. You know, it's not a big deal. So... So yeah, so there's lots of levels of things happening there in terms of embodied energy, local use of materials, um, good building science, good detailing, and honestly, less cost. It's going to cost less than putting cedar clapboards all over your house with corner boards and all that. But it's a different aesthetic, and that's not for everybody. No thing, just to briefly touch on those details so what makes it easy to replace if it ever had to happen is that there's a inch and a half gap of um, rain screen behind it so it's two layers of one by um, and then there's a building paper insulation which forms the building uh, the Larson truss and then we have the air barrier the sheathing and the stud wall traditional and in this case in particular, having the air barrier buried all the way, you know, if somebody else came after us down the road and had to replace the siding, I can sleep pretty easily at night because I know the integrity of the building is not, um, you know, won't be affected in, in, in any significant way. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for the idea of building with renovation in mind. So like you built the cladding so that the cladding is off the building. So you don't have to get into your thermal envelope, but you also have a utility core in the inside. So if somebody wants to add a new outlet or change the something in the kitchen, or um, I don't remember, I think this is, this is not on a slab. This is on some kind of hybrid slab, something or other warm form. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so there's, there's this idea of building where 
you're like, okay, the part that needs to stay intact doesn't really need to be touched. And then the rest of it is, yeah, if another homeowner comes along and they need to add something here, there are almost like, it's almost deconstructible, which is really kind of an interesting idea. You know, if people are like, oh man, there's nothing worse than having to get into a cellulose wall afterwards, it makes such a mess. But if they never have to get into the cellulose portion of your structure, aside from like, maybe you cut a door opening because somebody needs to add a add on to it, you know, they don't have to get into that layer. That layer is just kind of preserved within itself. And you've taken all those extra time and detailing to detail both the rain screen that's keeping the moisture out from inside and allowing it to, or out from outside and allowing it to dry from the inside as well. So it's like its own layer, almost like you don't have to address that. It's interesting what you say about um, the deconstructability of a house, um, the project that Bob and I are collaborating on right now um, started out with removing a building that was there. And the way we're going about that is rather than just having an excavator put it all in the landfill is that a crew came in to take everything apart bit by bit and um, sell off the pieces so that they can be reused. Um, that's another thing that we like to do without necessarily even be aware of it is the way we put things together using membranes instead of sticky stuff, um, using cellulose instead of spray foam. It's all can be taken apart and what needs to go to the landfill is pretty minimal at the end of the day. It's going to be the, the sheetrock on the walls and a few pieces of plywood and a little bit of subflooring and some pressure treated lumber and you know the concrete slab but it's really minimal and it's fun to see that you know just compared to something what something else that's that's being taken apart we i never had a dumpster on site for this project you know it was every two weeks i took a trip to the dump with a few barrels of um the backing off of the tape that we use to air seal and that type of thing. Um, a lot of it, you know, all the offcuts from the sheathing, from the siding, the KD lumber, all of that went into the wood stoves of the people in the neighborhood pretty much. So it's, you know, there's, there's a lot there that is very different and is uh, a byproduct of, of what we do and it's not until afterwards that you sit down and like, oh yeah, this is actually different than what's going on elsewhere. Yeah, and you probably have a, you know, like one of the things that I love to see when you go to the panelized factory is like, they just have a stack of wood. So like the next time I need a three foot piece, I can go over to the stack of wood and get a three foot piece instead of cutting a new two by four just to get three feet and then throwing the rest away. And so there's a lot of level that goes into that things you say i mean you're relying too a little bit on somebody else also having that level of detail where they've deconstructed a structure so that you can use recycled foam you know and so 
there's a whole industry there that really just requires people to take a little bit of time and be a little bit more thoughtful because they can, you know, it's the same with the plastics industry is it's always a little bit disappointing to see recycled plastics in something else when there not enough people are recycling plastic. So we've made it a less good product. Like it's great that they're recycling it into something else, you know, for sure, but they've, they've recycled into something that can't be anything done with afterwards. And so upcycling it, you know, having a, you know, a, a barrel full of things that you can use for blocking to hang your cabinetry when you get to that is, you know, you've got some offcuts and, you know, the reduction of waste is just a lot, a lot less. Yeah, and I think a lot of these things, we're just, we're getting to the point where this is normal for us. So in talking with other people, you know, we start to realize, oh, maybe it's not so normal. But I mean, that is the goal, right? To make this normal. So a funny little thing about how the sugar bush house became the sugar bush house is that it wasn't something that Bob cooked up for marketing purposes. What really happened is that um, early on in a, fairly early in the process before construction, definitely, um, as our client was reaching out to a lighting designer, um, they described the project as a sugar bush house, um, saying that, you know, there was a certain discomfort of thinking about it as their house, but much rather it's a piece of collaboration. And that's how, um, they actually named it Sugarbush House, and um, that's what it's been ever since. It, it's rare that a project gets a uh, a name like that that really sticks throughout the project and and beyond. So it was a fun little thing that happened in this case. Some of my favorite projects have gotten names like that because they've been designed around some particular element. Like the the Birch Farmhouse was actually named after an Angela Adams birch rug that the client had this rug and it was it's very many with birch trees and the color palette. And she designed this whole structure around this Angela Adams rug. You know, and then her next house, she designed it all around this slate farmhouse sink and everything in it had to have some kind of relation back to that. So it's kind of interesting that the, you know, the sugar bush house had that same, has that same tactile quality. So maybe when you're, um, and those projects actually are very similar to what you and Bob do is that it's a design build collaborative where she's involved during design and I'm involved during construction and she's actually a trained um interior designer so there's a very there's a very interesting quality of what happens between the design and construction and the details and how we kind of work all that out so that the tactile qualities of the project that you don't talk about that aren't just like what are my walls made of how efficient is this structure how durable is it come to life in the structure so it never feels like that like oh i have this you know, white walled house and everything's very cookie cutter, whatever, like all that stuff is just gone from, from day one. It feels, feels very personal to the owner. Did this start as a passive house or did you find that you, um, transitioned it into passive house because of all the other things that you were already doing 
was simply just, yeah, we could make this work as a passive house if we do all of the paperwork that goes with it. Yeah, it, that was basically the idea. And, um, you know, we, we work in a, in a town where there's other people who are ambitiously um, building high performance buildings. So um, since somebody else was shooting for passive house as a project at the same time, we were like, well, sure, we're making this a passive house too which, you know, just goes to show what sort of a little um, fun corner of the world we live in where, where that's actually a thing. So, you know, it's, it's a very, um, it's a collaborative kind of competition around here, but it's, it's a good thing that, you know, we indirectly encourage each other to, to all go a little further. And that's what happened here. It wouldn't take much other than the paperwork. Um, other people are pushing that direction. I took the passive house builder training ooh, three years ago, I think. Um, so definitely I've been wanting to do that. And um, in this case, it just all made perfect sense to just go for it. And it didn't change. It didn't change much. There was, it was, increased conversation around the windows and decision making around the windows that was probably the single biggest thing but the detailing and the design of this place is such that hitting the air tightness was a given anyway that's a that's a measure of quality the insulation levels for passive house was a matter of quantity of cellulose pretty much nothing else the mechanicals we're already there anyway, so you know, let's just do it. Yeah, do you find that it really just came down to making sure that the components that you used were approved for the program? You know, like the windows have to have certain uh, component pieces, probably the mechanical system that you used, like you already had it, you just had to make sure that the one that you were using was kind of approved. So it's really, had more to do with a paperwork trail and less to do with, you know, so, so passive house, some of the things that they care about is the BTUs per square foot, um, which you were already going for just because you build really durable structures and you get energy efficiency as a byproduct of that. But also that you, you had already thought about thermal bridging and, you know, how that works and related in the structure. So, so some of those things that take a, regular building to passive house on a normal project, which are harder for other people, you guys were kind of already doing. So it just kind of came back to, okay, does this window we want to use meet the standards that we need for the components? Okay, it doesn't, who can we use, you know, to fill in? So did, did you end up switching windows or did it turn out that the window that you used in the long run was actually fine? Um, we ended up switching uh, window brands, uh, which had I think a few benefits aesthetically, it made it a little more of a hassle schedule and sequencing wise, but in the long run, I'm actually happy that we ended up with a different company for, for the windows. Um, in some sense, it was actually a little disappointing that there wasn't more learning from <laughs> going through the passive house process. Like, <laughs> Oh, these are the things we take away from this that we need to do better about. 
um, to be, you know, be doing differently. So let's, you know, it's a good and a bad thing, I guess. I feel a little bit the same way that you did is that I started out doing energy consulting, then I did a uh, building performance Institute then I did hers writer. So till I got to passive house, I was kind of like, okay, what do you have to teach me that I don't know already? Like, what's, what's this one thing? What's my, what's my one takeaway uh, here? And so it kind of sounds like you were already there. Like all these things that you were already doing, you were like, okay, I, I already know those things. That's great. So um, it's good that that, that already propelled this project because we talk about passive house in terms of, you know, energy performance. And it was a great byproduct of what you were already doing, but passive house doesn't always care about or really ever care about some of the things that some of the other certification programs do, which is local materials or, um, you know, what the life cycle of the materials you are using, like not even necessarily local, but, you know, extraction, transportation, you know, you can build a passive house that's filled with spray foam and it meets the passive house standard based on the metrics and the components and all of that. But it might not meet your level of, um, you know, what you feel is important for your company, which has to do more with local materials and, you know, carbon sinking materials, or, you know, at least, carbon negative materials well what's what's great about you know at the same time what's great about the passive house standard it's it's so focused on performance so it can be applied you know we've talked about certain things that work in some parts of the countries won't work in other parts of the country but you can um the passive house standard doesn't care about that so it's as far as building standards go, um, I think it's the gold standard because it's so focused on that one thing and there's really very little frills around it. Like, oh, you have to check this funny box. Um, and yeah, everything else is really up to what's possible regionally, you know. Not, what I like not, about Passive House is that it doesn't, negate other things it's not it, it really is focused on energy and it can be a subset of something greater and it you know it can work with other things i actually look at this as a pretty good house that also happens to be passive house yeah they're not mutually exclusive for sure because its focus is really on this one thing it's like you can achieve this if you do these energy metrics but you know you can also achieve lots of other things that are part of your goal that don't add any additional you know money to a project in fact might save you money if you are focusing on some of those local conditions or what's available or what your you know what your particular company has done so many times that it's it's fast and easy and it's you know it's one of those things that simply building a house for for the client is it's a lot about the experience and you know this hopefully as little anxiety in it as possible but that's always part of it but the whole um, the local aspect just brings in a lot of stuff that's just makes it richer and makes it a more interesting experience because you know we 
stood on the lot with a sire and looked at this tree and the other and what we might be able to use this for. And um, yeah, it's just a, there's a big social component to it in addition to I want to use certain materials for, you know, the, the global warming impact or that type of thing. It's like, it's a lot broader than that even. There's a community aspect to it and we've given tours for sure. Um, we're putting together a virtual tour for October um, for a local group. So there's this community building educational aspect to it that doesn't show up in passive house but is it's in there in pretty good house and it's important to us it's important i think you know you're sharing that with your community at large but it's also important for people to come because like you said the client doesn't know what they don't know yet right you know they come to you and they have this idea and these things and we sort of direct that like this is how we will get to your overall aspect. And so then other people showing up are like, oh, hey, what did you do here? Or like, oh, this is cool. Or I get this now. So sharing that, and this is part of the reason why I do the podcast is sharing this information is how everybody gets better. And everybody starts asking for these things like, oh, I didn't know I wanted that, but now I really want that. And that's, you know, it's important. So I think it's cool that you're doing the community aspects. I think that's one of the, the lead points too, is community awareness as, you know, being able to share all of the things that you did here that made this project what it is. Um, and that's not as common in residential. So I think it's cool that you guys are doing this as a community project and sharing it. You know, you're not asking your client to give people tours all the time, but you're sharing the, you know, although it sounds like maybe you will. And if this client really loves you, they will be more than happy to give tours of their building. Those are the good clients. The, at the end of the project, they love the architect, they love the builder, they want to show it to everybody, and they're good with doing tours. Are you seeing or putting more COVID clauses into your next projects that you're moving forward with? Just saying like, hey, we can't control the supply chain. So we may, you know, this normally takes us nine months. It might take 12 and, you know, we need to be prepared for an, an extension. So, I mean, it sounded like you were far enough along that you were able to just kind of still in a very interesting way, meet her timeline and her move-in date. But as we're moving forward now, we're really starting to see the stack up behind kind of all of the, the other things and that the materials are also costing a lot more as some things become less available. So like you said, hemlock isn't used all that often, but if everybody used up all the cedar because they were all home, now people are going to be buying your hemlock because that's what's available. And so are you putting something like how are how are you proceeding with your with your clients in a somewhat I mean it's kind of unknown like we don't really know what's going to happen it comes back to the trust and I think the you know just being able to say that hey we did figure out ways to work um, through this and are committed that way uh, I think that's sort of goes a long way 
in general, we found clients to be understanding of, you know, the world's upside down and there's, it affects everybody. They're not really um, expecting us to make it spin differently. It's definitely difficult. We also, there's a different sense of urgency for people to get their projects on the way. Um, I think we all, as a society, have sort of a feeling of, you know, oh, maybe I shouldn't be putting um, too many things off in life, uh, you know, because world can change, life can change quite a bit. So it's it's a balancing act because you just still need to give the process of developing a project time, even though there may be impulses with folks like this needs to happen now because this is, I need to get out of the city and um, that type of thing. So it's, I think it's ultimately just a balancing act, um, just another layer of the, the pretty, um, you know, complex relationship between the designer builders and and clients you gotta make sure that everybody's a good fit you know and that's true usually and maybe even a little more true under these circumstances so. Thanks for tuning in again this week on the podcast. I just wanted to send out a special thank you and an apology for missing last week's podcast. My husband and I actually decided to take the new Tesla on a road trip, which was quite a lot of fun, to a cabin that's off the grid, no cell phones, no Wi-Fi, no access, no screen time, which was amazing. And I think what we all need here in 2020 is a little bit of separation from what's going on on our screens every day. So thanks for joining in on the podcast. Feel free to send me an email. Thank you for those of you who have sent emails about what you'd like to hear, how much you're enjoying the podcast, and for reaching out after an episode. You can reach me, Emily, at matramarch.com, and we'll see you again next week. Bye.